So our passage this morning is slightly different from what we've been studying thus far in 1 John. Most of the passages have been directed at the false teachers or discussing what the false teachers have been teaching. But this passage right here is more of a word of encouragement for the true believers within the churches that John is writing to. So we no longer live in a world where the primary method of communication is the written letter. But remember in John's day and Paul's day and Peter's day that letters were the primary ways that people communicated with one another. So it's very likely that when John actually penned 1 John that churches would have gathered to hear this letter read out loud in a worship service. Same with many of Paul's letters. Now, we have no frame of reference for this because we can get communication instantly, whether it be through text message, FaceTime, telephone, email. I could keep going and going. So we have to put ourselves into the mind and the shoes of the hearers that John is writing to. And we see in verses 12 through 14 this phrase repeated over and over again. He says, I am writing to you, or I write to you. He says it six times in verses 12 through 14. The emphasis is intentional on John's part as he writes to these Christians. As an aside, I actually find letter writing to be quite refreshing. It's like a blast from the past. So I would encourage you this year, maybe even this week, maybe you want to write an actual letter with pen and paper to a brother or sister in Christ in this congregation, just as a word of encouragement. You don't have to, but it would be a really cool thing to do. So I'm an apologist for bringing back the written letter. All right? I think it's a really cool thing to do. And most young people don't even know what that is. But a written letter is when you, do you know how to address an envelope? All right, at the top left-hand corner, you put your address, and then across the front, you put someone else's address, and then you write a letter to someone. Could you imagine growing up in a time where that was the only way that you could communicate with somebody, and you would send off this long letter, and you would wait perhaps months at a time to get a reply, and the amount of excitement that you would have gotten when you finally received that letter. So this is probably what John's audience dealt with. He is writing this letter to them. They gather in a church service, more than likely, and they are having it read to them, most likely, by a leader in the congregation. So as we work our way through these verses today, I want you to notice two things from this text. Number one, God's work in the lives of true believers. And then number two, the tension of living in the world. Number one, God's work in the lives of true believers. And then number two, the tension of living in the world. Now in verses 12 through 14, you have three categories of people. You have children, young men, and fathers. And it's repeated twice in those verses. And you can read a number of different commentaries... And one train of thought is that John is writing to young people in the faith, little children, young men in the faith, and then fathers in the faith. And this would be spiritually speaking. So he's talking about immature believers, believers that are growing in their faith, 
and then very wise believers. But that's actually, I don't think, the way we are to understand those terms. I don't think it's speaking in terms of spiritual maturity. The reason I don't think that, and the reason it's not just me, many commentaries don't think that, is that phrase that John uses, children, in the context of 1 John, is a banner to describe everyone that he's writing to. In fact, he says it earlier in chapter 1. He calls them my little children. So this is the generic description of all of the people that he's writing to. And then he gives specific encouragement to young men and to fathers. Children is a term of endearment that he uses throughout the epistle. And then he gets very specific when he's talking to fathers and young men. So the first reason John writes... He tells us, is because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And he is addressing this to the children. So the children would be everyone in the community. John is saying, I write to you, children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So if you are here today and you are in Christ, do not miss the magnitude of what John is teaching here. Your sins have been forgiven. This should change everything about your purpose and your outlook on life if you're in Christ. William Cowper was an 18th century poet, hymn writer. His most famous hymn that he penned, which we sing here, was There is a Fountain. Cowper actually had an incredibly challenging life. His mother passed away when he was six years old. He was sent off to boarding school where he was bullied because of his size. He had mental health issues throughout his life. He actually attempted to commit suicide twice. And he was put into, basically, an insane asylum at that time because of all of the mental problems that he dealt with. While he was in the asylum, the doctor that treated Cowper, his name was Dr. Cotton. And Dr. Cotton was a Christian. And so while Cowper was in the facility, he was crying out to this doctor because he wanted his sins to be taken away. He felt the guilt and the shame and the anxiety of being a sinner. And through God's grace and Dr. Cotton working on Cowper, he comes to faith in Christ. Listen to Cowper's words. He says, But the happy period which was to shake off my fetters and afford me a clear opening of the free mercy of God in Christ Jesus was now arrived. I flung myself into a chair near the window and seeing a Bible there, ventured once more to apply to it for comfort and instruction. The first verse I saw was the 25th of third of Romans. Now that's not how we talk, but that's how they talked in the 18th century. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Immediately I received strength to believe it, and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made my pardon sealed in his blood and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. This is what happens 
If you're in Christ today, your story might not be as eloquent or as well-known as Cowper's, but you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, the verb that John uses here is actually a perfect tense verb. And I know I'm about to lose half the room, but you teachers know all about the tenses of verbs. This means, a perfect tense verb means the action involves a present state which has resulted from a past event and that present state is continuing while the past action is a completed action. So how does this make sense in the context of 1 John? John says, for all that are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. So the past action is the death of Christ. But it brings about a current reality for all Christians that our sins have been forgiven. But not just one time, it is a current reality with a continuing action. Your sins are forgiven consistently, ongoingly, because of the past action of Christ's death on the cross. So we must cling, brothers and sisters, you must cling to this truth. When Satan tries to tempt you to believe that Christ's death was not sufficient for your sin. You have to cling to this truth even when you don't feel like you've been forgiven of your sins. Because how you feel ultimately doesn't matter. Because God's word is objective truth. Jesus' death was sufficient for your sin. That past action is continuous in your life, ongoing, until he returns. So if you don't feel like you've been forgiven of your sins, let me encourage you to believe it objectively because God's word says so and allow your feelings to catch up. Don't base your forgiveness off your feelings. Base it on the truth of God's word. The forgiveness of sin is done, John tells us, for his name's sake. Don't miss this. You're not saved for your own glory. You're not saved to make yourself feel better. You're saved for the glory of God. For Jesus' name to be made known. Jesus forgives you for the glory of his Father. The atoning death of Christ was ultimately for the glory of God and for his name to be made known throughout all creation. Then, after he gives this generic statement to the children, which is everyone that he's writing to, he then gets specific with the fathers. And he says, because you know him who is from the beginning. This is saying that the older men have known Jesus for longer amounts of time than anyone else in the congregation. Perhaps you've been fortunate enough to live a long life and you came to know Jesus at a young age. That actually means that you have known Jesus longer than many of us in the room. Don't take that for granted. Don't take it for granted if you're an older man in this room and you came to faith in Christ at a young age that you actually have great wisdom and experience to pass on to younger men like myself 
and men even younger than me. So steward that gift that God has given you. The communion that you have had with Christ is longer in time than the communion that I have had with Christ. So we need your voice. We need your influence. We need your wisdom. We need you pouring into younger men in our midst. Steward your life well for God's glory. And then he reminds the younger men that they have overcome the evil one. Now, normally you would think the evil one is talking about Satan. But it's actually not talking about Satan in this passage. The evil one here are all of the false teachers. Those that were claiming that Jesus was not God in the flesh. And they were also claiming to not have sin since they had been in Christ. How encouraging it is, as John writes to these young men, that they were strong enough in their faith to refute the claims of these false teachers. May that be said of younger men in our church and amongst this entire generation, that we are strong enough in our faith to combat false teaching, that we would know the scriptures well enough to where when false teaching comes in our midst, we can sniff it out and eliminate it from our lives. And at the end of verse 13, John writes another set of remarks to children, to young men, and to fathers. And first he says, because you know the Father. We, we already know this. This is an affirmation that they have received the gospel and are remaining true to it. And his remark to the fathers, by the way, is the exact same remark as he gave in verse 13. He repeats it for emphasis. And his concluding remarks to the young men are this. You have overcome the evil one. But then he adds in. You are strong and the word of God abides in you. And we're not talking about physical strength here. John is talking about spiritual strength. And the only reason these young men have spiritual strength is because the word of God abides in them. So if you want to be strong in the Lord, then you obey the teachings of God's word. You abide in Christ, as we studied last week in John 15, and as we studied all weekend with our students at D-Now. You want to be strong in Christ? Abide in His Word. Our spiritual strength is directly related to abiding in Christ, to abiding in His Word. Nothing is more important than that. Nothing. So we should memorize it, meditate on it, Pray it, study it, devote your life to it, because that's where your strength lies. I've had so many people approach me, well, when I say so many, a handful. That's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, you know how pastors can do that kind of stuff. I've had a few people come to me and say that they completed our Bible reading plan last year. And for the first time, maybe in their life, they were able to read the entire Bible. That's a huge accomplishment, and we don't do it because we somehow think it means we're going to you know, get extra points from God. That's not the reason why we're doing it, but there is great value 
brothers and sisters, to reading the whole counsel of God. There's, I mean, you can't measure it with anything else. As important as it is to do a deep dive of a book, it's phenomenal. We should all maybe devote our lives to becoming experts at a certain book of the Bible. That would be a great goal to have. But you cannot put a price on knowing the whole counsel of God. So one of the benefits of reading God's Word from cover to cover, year in and year out, is as you do it, you pick up on the whole storyline of the Bible and how God is redeeming a people to himself in Leviticus, how he's redeeming a people to himself in the Gospel of Mark, how he is redeeming a group of people to himself in 1 John. So in order to understand biblical theology, which is how God redeems a people to himself throughout all of Scripture, the best way to do that is to read God's Word from cover to cover. Spiritual strength is found when we are in God's Word. But number two, this text also, the second half of this text, talks about the tension that we have as believers of Christ with living in the world. John's command here is as timely of a command today as it was when he was writing towards the end of the first century. Don't, don't assume that because we live in 2023, that it was harder, or it's harder to be a Christian now than it was in the first century. Because every generation, every period of church history, has had its own shares of struggling to learn how to balance the tension of being in a world that is against Christ and how we are to interact with it. There was just as much sexual promiscuity and evil in first century Rome as there is today in 2023 America. So we're not living, honestly, we're not living in any worse of a time than it was for many of our brothers and sisters throughout church history. It might look different, but we're all dealing with how do we live in a world that does not believe and practice the values that we do as Christians. So the Christians here are wrestling with that same tension that you and I are wrestling with today. John tells his readers not to love the world or the things in the world. Now we have to be careful here. John is not saying that you must completely remove yourself from the world. That's not what he's teaching. We have a whole movement of history known as the monastic movement where people just, all Christians, just removed themselves from the world. And they gathered and they just studied God's word and they prayed. And don't get me wrong, it sounds really awesome. But that's not what John is telling us to do here. He is not advocating removing yourself completely from all activity in the world. That would actually be a violation of Jesus' teaching. Number one, it would be a violation of loving your neighbor as yourself. If you remove yourself from all of your lost neighbors, you're not loving them. But number two, it's also a direct violation of the Great Commission, 
to go and make disciples of all nations. Many of these nations are living according to the world's standards. So John is not teaching that Christians should remove themselves from the world. He has given us a world to enjoy and relationships to have with one another. John is saying, though, that the world and all the stuff of the world will become a temptation to Christians. So we have to make sure that we prioritize love of God over love of the world. And in my opinion, that's more challenging for American Christians than it probably is for anyone else in the world. Because what do we know as Americans about our stuff? We love our stuff. We love new stuff, shiny stuff, expensive stuff. We just love stuff. We love possessions. Let's be honest, we do. One of the ways that we fight uh, lust in, as Americans is not just sexual lust, it's property lust. It's possessions. It's wanting to have more and more and more and accumulate for ourselves more and more and more. And because stuff, for lack of a better word, makes us feel good and makes us happy, we rarely stop to consider how dangerous it might actually be. And in verse 16, John explains how the world can be so dangerous. Here's what he says. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not, John says, from the Father, but is from the world. So Christians, do not be deceived. Your possessions can ultimately possess you. Your possessions can ultimately possess you. In our flesh, we want all of the things that our lost friends want. We want all of those things. We want shiny, new, fancy stuff. We are drawn towards new and nice and shiny. None of us in here are striving to have old, broken, dusty stuff. None of that excites us. Well, maybe some of you. If so, I'm not really. Maybe, I don't know. So, but we have to ask ourselves the question. Are we being good stewards of what God has given us? And is having the newest, the greatest, the latest, the shiniest always the best use of our financial resources? Thank you. (laughs) Especially when we live in a world that is still unreached by the gospel. When so many parts of the world still have never even heard the name of Jesus. I've used this illustration before. It's the one that I I use in my own life, thinking about how I should steward the financial resources that God has given me. And it comes from a book called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper that he wrote many, many years ago. And I've shared it with you before. He says Christians should have the mentality that we're always living in wartime. What does he mean by that? He says, in wartime, we ask different questions about what to do with our lives. 
than we do during peacetime. During wartime, we ask, what can I do to advance the cause? What can I do to bring victory? What sacrifice can I make? Or what risk can I take to ensure the joy of triumph? But in peacetime, we tend to ask these questions. What can I do to be more comfortable? To have more fun? To avoid trouble? And possibly avoid sin, he says. So John is writing to these Christians, and he's telling them, be careful as you live in the world, because the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, they're all trying to suck us in. And none of those things, John says, come from the Father. And if we simply spend our resources on them without even considering that perhaps God might want us to live our lives differently in the world, then we have actually become enslaved to the ways of the world, perhaps without even knowing it. This, this is not to say that you can't go to lunch after church today. This is not to say you can't spend money on recreational activities or a new pair of shoes And I'm confessing that I have certainly not mastered this myself either. But perhaps we should at least consider if there's no tension within us whatsoever when it comes to our stuff, perhaps it's become an idol in our life. If we're not at least going before the Lord and inquiring of Him, is this really what you want me to do with the financial resources that you've given me? If we're not even asking that question, then we're making a huge assumption that God automatically wants us to spend our money how we want to spend it. And I know nobody in this room actually believes that. So what does he mean by the desire of the eyes? That means, as human beings, we want nice things. We're prone to covetousness. Like I said earlier, lust is not just sexual lust. We can lust after material possessions as well. We want them. It begins to consume our thinking until we get it. The pride of life, he talks about here, is not one who's proud of their life, even though that is what it says. Pride of life is being proud of the possessions that you have and wanting people to know that you have lots of possessions what John is talking about here. So we must all reject that urge in our flesh to do so. We must take heart to what John writes in verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know this to be true. The world is passing away. Your stuff will not go with you. You know this, but yet we don't live this way. We live as if our stuff is going with us. And we live as if our stuff is what brings us contentment and joy and identity, when in reality it does not. The world, John says, is passing away. So we have to ask ourselves, Christians, we have to ask ourselves, why do we love the world so much? Cyprian, third century church father, here's what he says in one of his treatises. He says, since the world hates the Christian, why do you love that which hates you? 
And why do you not rather follow Christ, he says, who both redeemed you and loves you? This is not a call to remove yourself from the world. This is not a call to invest so much into the world that you lose all identity as a follower of Christ. It is a call, what John is talking about, is a call to live in the tension of a world that does not care about Christ and wants you to exhaust all of your time, energy, and resources towards things that will fade away. And John is telling us here, do not fall into that trap. The only thing that never fades away is the gospel. It's the word of God. The message of God loving humanity so much that he sent his son to die the death that we deserved for our sin in our place so that any that repent of their sin and believe in faith in Christ can be reconciled to a holy God. That is the only thing that does not fade away. The message of the gospel. So as we wrestle, and, and I'm preaching to myself here, as we wrestle with the tension of living in this world, we must keep the gospel at the forefront of our minds and hearts. The only thing that will last is the eternal destination of souls. So the question for us is, how concerned are we, how concerned am I about that? John Owen, I've been reading a lot of him lately because I mention him like every week. He wrote The Glory of Christ. It's a really good book. And in one part of the book, he's addressing objections that non-believers have to why they will not come to faith in Christ. And one of these objections he talks about in the book is this. He says, Many put off receiving Christ because they do not wish to renounce their lusts and pleasures. Here's how Owen responds to this objection. This is my prayer for us as a congregation today. He says, As for your pleasures, the truth is you have never yet known real pleasure and will not. Until you come to Christ. For only in Christ are true pleasures to be found. A few moments with Christ are to be preferred to an eternity with the cursed pleasures of this world. We all know people like this. We've all had conversations with lost people. Who would tell you to your face and tell me to my face that the reason they will not come to Christ is because they do not want to give up the pleasures of this world. They're fine intellectually understanding the content of the gospel. They might even believe that Jesus did actually die on a cross for their sins. They would even affirm that, but they will not submit to the lordship of Jesus. They will not devote their lives to him. They will not allow him to take control of every aspect of their life. But I would echo Owen's words here. The pleasures of Christ far exceed anything that this world has to offer. So if you are here today and you are not in Christ, I would tell you that Satan is duping you to think 
that to follow Christ means that you will lose the lusts and pleasures of this world and that it is not worth it. And I'm persuading you that it is worth it. That following after Christ is worth every trial, every tragedy, every moment of suffering that you will ever endure. It is worth it, brothers and sisters. Following Jesus is costly. Walking the narrow path is difficult, but eternal pleasure awaits those that do so. So come to Christ today. I'm going to pray for us now, and then we're going to enter into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Father, as we get ready to partake of this meal, it is a reminder of the gospel, the news that never fades away, that you love us, that you demonstrated that love in sending Jesus for us. So prepare our hearts and minds now as we enter into this time of communion. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.